This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Of its co-sponsors, MIT's Comparative Media Studies Program. We have Henry Jenkins here. And on behalf of the Center for Future Civic Media, which I serve as research director. Tonight we bring you a program on youth and civic engagement. And the formative question that we've posed is, has unprecedented access to information changed young people's understanding of democracy? And maybe some of you... Uh, in the group formerly known as the audience, who are now deeply participatory, will come up with good contributions on this topic in the second hour of the program. Uh, The format will be that our speakers will speak for 15 minutes each, and then after that period, we will engage with you uh, for your questions and comments. The MIT Communications Forum has been here for, I guess, 30 years now, Um, And it uh, invites the public as well as the MIT community to a series of conferences and forums on all aspects of communications, but with a special emphasis on emerging technologies. And this forum, as I said, is offered in partnership not only with MIT's uh, Comparative Media Studies program, but also with the Center for Future Civic Media. Uh, Tonight, our speakers include Lance Bennett, who's the Ruddick C. Lawrence Professor of communication and professor of political science at the University of Washington, where he founded and directs his own center, the Center for Communication and Civic Engagement. It sounds a lot like ours, so maybe you can fill us in on what we should be doing together. Uh, The center is dedicated to understanding how communication processes and technologies can enhance citizen participation in social life, politics, and global affairs. A great mission. Uh, Next to Lance Bennett, we have Ingeborg Enter, who is the outreach manager of the Center for Future Civic Media here at MIT. And she's a graduate of the Electronic Publishing Research Group here at the MIT Media Lab, where her research focused on creating collaborative community uses of the Internet. And Ingeborg is here today in particular because of her experience as program manager for the Computer Clubhouse Network, which is an international network of after-school activities, which create an environment where young people from underserved communities use technology for creative self-expression. We're also very pleased to have with us Alan Casey, who's founder and CEO of Be the Change, a nonpartisan citizens civic organization, and he co-founded and previously served as the CEO of City Year, uh, a youth service corps which enlists more than 1,200 young adults in 16 communities across America and in Johannesburg, South Africa, for a year of full-time community service. Alan and I first met when he was just a very young man, um, and I was teaching at Harvard, and he was one of my students. Then he went on to become incredibly famous, founding City Year, which was a model for AmeriCorps, Um, under the Clinton years. Uh, And we're very pleased to have tonight as moderator Mitchell Resnick, and he directs the Lifelong Kindergarten Research Group here at the MIT Media Laboratory, and he serves as head of the Media Arts and Sciences Academic Program here. He is a principal investigator for the Center for Future Civic Media. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. 
Well, it's great to have you here, and it's great to have this assembled panel to talk on the topic of youth and civic engagement. And I just want to start with a few comments to help frame some of the session we'll be participating in today. And actually, the first thought that I had in thinking about this panel on youth and civic engagement was focused on this word engagement. Because I think a lot of times when people think about the role of youth in their local communities or in the communities, the larger communities, and there's, talk, there's lots of talk about greater levels of involvement, and there's everything people will point to, uh, greater levels of you know, voting of, among young people in the current cycle, or some greater levels of uh, volunteering in certain types of community service. But a lot of times those measures give some indication of involvement, but I'd like to make a distinction between involvement and engagement. And we use the word engagement very you know, specifically. It really goes beyond a type of just getting involved in community, but really taking an active role of trying to get your voice heard to bring about a type of transformational change, to see how you can really get your ideas out to the world, collaborate with others, to bring about meaningful change uh, to those around you. And I think as we think about the different types of uh, ideas that we'll be discussing today, to think about this idea of engagement. And for me, it goes beyond. I know one of the framing questions was about uh, how will access to information bring about this change? And I think we want to think beyond just access to information to be a, how people can really bring about, take the new tools to, uh, to, to try, try to shape the changes around them. So it's not just about getting access to information, but shaping uh, the world around you. And that brings to the second point I'd like to make, is the first one being about going beyond engagement. And the second one, another theme we'll be talking about throughout the panel, is the role of new media in this type of civic engagement. So I'd like to, I think we'll continue to see throughout the panel a link between media engagement and civic engagement. And again, we read a lot these days about how young people are very active with new media. But again, I think it's important to draw the distinction between involvement and engagement. Certainly you see a lot of involvement with media, but I think what we want to be focusing on was what I would see as media engagement, how people can really take new media and shape it in a way and use it to, again, to get their own voices heard, to bring about change, to be able to be an active, to play a real active role within the community. As I thought about these ideas of civic engagement and media engagement, I thought back about how much has changed since my own childhood and some of my own activities that might have been in this area of you know, some form of getting involved in local community and certain forms of civic engagement and media engagement and thinking about how much things had changed. I thought about two examples that came up. I must have been about 12 or 13 years old. Uh, one of them was I decided at about that age that I wanted to start my own newsletter for the neighborhood. And this might have been an early sign. I did spend some years as a journalist later in my life. Uh, but at the age of 12 or 13, I thought it would be great to have a newsletter for the neighborhood to report on what was going on. The media of the time, I started using just carbon paper. Luckily, I had very strong bearing down in my handwriting, so I was able to make quite a few copies with a few pieces of carbon paper. And the big advance in my newsletter was when I found out down the street someone had a mimeograph machine. But it was a way for me to try to get my voice heard, to team up with others in the neighborhood, to start thinking about some of the challenging issues of the community and to get discussions started in the community. But again, certainly had the limitations of the media of the time. A second thing that I was working on around that same time at about the same age was I decided that in our backyard, what we really needed in my backyard was a miniature golf course. So I ended up, my parents were tolerant enough to let me dig up the backyard, take piles of dirt into the walls, 
make a major golf course, and invite the other kids in the community, of the other kids in the neighborhood over. And we had lots of interaction around building this major golf course, interacting together about it. And it was a way to bring about a new, again, engaging in the community to help bring the, the young people in the community together, both in building this together and then interacting around it. So you might say some of the core media of my youth were carbon paper and dirt. And I think we've come a long way from there. But again, it was the right way of getting me started. But if you think about what's possible today, sometimes I think people do think about the new digital technologies and they see how the, the ways in which it would be different. They think about uh, that today we see all the changes. It's not using carbon paper or mimeograph machines. But you see lots of teen bloggers who are writing things that can spread their voice around the world. But for me, is what's most important is not so much the spreading the voice around the world but a greater expressiveness which is possible today. So it's not just the distance that can be reached, but the way in which you really can be more expressive with your voice and not just have the, the newsletter that I put out, but have different ways of creating, not just with videos and music and sound, but simulated worlds uh, that you can create. We've seen some of that in the center. Several graduate students are using our Scratch software with local kids in the community who are using it to report on issues around their community, things that are important to them, to be able to share with the rest of the community, being able to do things by creating these animated simulated worlds far beyond what I was able to do. And certainly in the world of entertainment, people, you know, young people being able to use the new media to go far beyond uh, you know, making their own major golf courses, but putting things online that can get, bring people together uh, around different types of common conversations to bring about change in their communities. So with those you know, comments, we'll turn over to the panel uh, and we'll go down the table this way, starting with Lance Bennett, to hear some of their comments on the issues of youth and civic engagement. Hi. It's nice to be here. And um, thanks for coming in on such a spectacular day. It's uh, nice being uh, in and out uh, on this day. So I, I've been worrying about the problem of youth engagement for some long time now because the future of democracy seems to be at stake and I believe that citizens ought to be involved in that future uh, directly and um, in important ways and for many young people politics is a dirty word um, an unpleasant concept and uh, the way in which we approach the teaching about government and politics in schools doesn't work in fact some studies suggest that civic education in many school settings uh, turns kids off even more. So I, I and, and I've been part of that process of trying to get civic ed in schools, in, and in some ways I've had very happy success, but at very high cost. The, the amount of resources that we've found that needs to go into classrooms to transform them and get kids outside of classrooms to participate in their community, bring those experiences back in, more than most teachers can manage on their own. Um, and so I've increasingly turned to after-school programs um, and to online communities uh, that involve young people. In the process, though, I, I've been puzzled by the question of what is it that is different uh, for young people growing up in this democratic society that makes politics uh, an edgy proposition. And one of the things that I, I think that's useful is to think about the, the sort of sweeping background changes that have gone on over the last 40 or 50 years in this society. You can attribute them to globalization effects, and, and we can talk about what those things uh, really look like in the, the daily life terms. 
But if, if you look at modernity, the, the, the modern society that is beginning to fade, uh, beginning to fall apart in important ways, and I think not necessarily unhappy ways, but just uh, it is, uh, is defined by membership organizations involving large numbers of, of people, social hierarchies in many of the organizations in which people live and work, uh, informally including even the family, uh, and, and defined by one way, and I guess the peak moment of uh, the modern era was the mass society with mass communication in it. And, and this has begun to change to, toward what many Giddens and others have talked about as a kind of the late modern social formation in, in which uh, social networks and distributed organizations become much more important, uh, sort of person-centered you know, social networks and distributed organizations which people opt in and opt out. And, and participatory media becomes important networking material uh, in that social formation. And I think that young people have been born into this uh, in, in interesting and important ways that affect their citizenship and their civic identities. So what I see is a kind of a generational divide. Uh, you know, you can sort people into categories easily on a screen, more difficult in real life. But uh, for purposes of the quick sort, um, if you look at young people who've been born into this late modern society with participatory media networks and, and loose-tied organizations, the duty to participate in government is, is, is relatively weak compared to their parents and, and certainly compared to their grandparents. Uh, but, but there is an interest in politics, but it's an interest on the, the politics that are organized around lifestyle values, whether those be the environment or consumer politics or making corporations be more socially responsible. Voting may or may not enter the lifestyle picture. Uh, Barack Obama seems to have inspired a lot of people, but I think the inspiration in part comes from the access to participatory uh, media that makes them part of the campaign communication process. Um, there's a mistrust of media, conventional media, and politicians, um, whereas dutiful citizens continue to watch the news, read newspapers, uh, older generation citizens, that is. Um, loose networks versus membership organizations. So all, all of these differences, I think, are important for understanding youth engagement uh, potential. In terms of learning to engage, I mean, wh where do kids learn and where can they learn to engage if not in classrooms? And I'm going to talk about classrooms again in a minute. Um, I think that the, the predispositions of many young people today are for interactive uh, sharing of knowledge across peer networks, uh, participation in the creation of content, uh, and a preference for doing that in democratic environments uh, where content is created and assessed on a more egalitarian basis. Some people may recoil in horror from that prospect that knowledge is a collective, uh, collaborative enterprise. On the other hand, um, we might want to talk about that uh, later on. Whereas the, the conventional learning styles are, are much different, hierarchical, authoritative, one-way uh, transmission. So, so if, if we think about participatory media as part of the material of this networked society in which young people might be more inclined to engage if they participate in the content of the politics that they uh, experience, we, we see some pretty amazing examples in this campaign of participatory media that has large audiences, large and uh, I think youthful audiences. Oops, sorry. Thank all of you for your time, your suggestions, your encouragement, and your prayers. And I look forward to continuing our conversation 
in the weeks and months to come. Hey B, it's me. If you're there, pick up. I was just watching you on C-SPAN. <sighs> anyway, call me back. Well, you, you get the idea. Um, what, what's interesting is that, that, among many things, this has now racked up some 8 million views uh, on YouTube and more in various mashed-up versions that you can find in lots of other places than, than YouTube. Um, it, it's not participatory in the sense that this was a, a garage band type project. It was done by more professional media producers. But the participation in the watching it, the rating it, the sharing it, the viral circulation of it has, has I think, been uh, prominent and, and really quite interesting. Uh, another interesting video that, again, has the participatory qualities of rating, sharing, mashing up, and um, sending it around. There was Scarlett Johansson and Will I Am. It was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists. I don't know where the volume is on this, but... Yes, we can. Yes, we can. So while these kinds of things seem to account for some of the Obama youth movement, um, what, what's interesting to me is here's one of the most watched uh, McCain YouTube videos. Um, Keep that faith. Keep your courage. Stick together. Stay strong. About Do not a quarter of a million views Stand compared up. to eight We're million. We'll never surrender. What must a president believe about us, about America, that she is worth protecting, that liberty is priceless, our people honorable, our future prosperous, remarkable, and free? And what must we believe about that president? What does he think? Where has he been? Has he walked the walk? So, and interspersed with prisoner of war um, images from, from McCain's past, but a very conventional, modernist, one-way, it, it's a campaign ad. Um, and, and yet this... Anti-McCain ad called "No, You Can't." Has you got can't more do views it, than any of the McCain ads. President Bush has talked about our saying in Iraq for 50 years, maybe 100. That'd be fine with me. I'll offer anybody here $50 an hour if you'll go pick lettuce in Yuma this, this season and, and pick for the whole season. So, okay, sign up, okay. Now you sign up, you sign up, and you'll be there for the whole season, the whole season. You can't do it, my friend. That old, uh, that old Beach Boys song, Bomberan, bom, 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 bom. up and get a life. So, no, you can't. 
So this level of participation, <laughs> I, I, I think, offers an important insight into why Obama has a, a youth base. And, and it also leads me to think that what's going on by way of learning how to engage is often going on much more actively outside of schools, which are the conventional sites of civic education, than inside schools. So I, I'm recommending that we find ways to, to follow the young people where, where they are doing creative things, but also to see if we can facilitate in ways I'm going to talk about really quickly uh, so that they can do it more effectively and teach others. So schools have problems. Textbook knowledge is incredibly dull. Classrooms are not democratic. Um, often politically contested in police. They're topics that kids just can't talk about without having parents start railing at principals and teachers. Um, and, and they're limited in participatory media access in various ways. Websites are, are censored. Um, there's little digital media skill uh, training and literacy projects going on in schools. Um, that doesn't mean that online environments are magic solution at all. And, and I think that online environments are fraught with other kinds of problems, but because we have access to creating tools that can be distributed... I think that we have ways of enhancing those environments. So that's, that's really where my interest in civic learning has gone, from schools to community organizations and now to distributing tools in community organizations, online environments, and in, in those cases where schools are willing to engage with them back to schools. But I think that online environments have several big problems. Authenticity, many of the resource bases for designing youth online environments are government and NGO funding, and control becomes an issue. Getting kids to go back to government immediately before they've explored in their own ways what their political interests are uh, turns out to turn kids off. Um, when young people build their own sites, however, it's often hard for them to get audiences. So the question, one of the questions that we're addressing, and I would commend you to go to the MIT Press site for a book called Civic Life Online, where a lot of these issues are raised by interesting authors, that you can download the book for free, so this isn't really a pitch to buy it. Um, and it, we, we are concerned about how kids can develop sites and get audiences and not be discouraged if they don't immediately get audiences for their blogs or their uh, home-built sites. And then there's, across the board, a skills deficit that sites often engage by saying, do this or join this group, but not really telling kids how to organize for themselves, not talking about how to define issues, to share them, to publicize them, uh, and to take action and to assess action. So there's a whole gamut of uh, skills that we find missing out there that we think can be uh, sent around. So here's some, just some quick ideas about where we might uh, promote civic learning online. Um, one is a group of students at the University of Washington brought this site to our center and said, can, can, we, can, can we make it live here and, and, and talk about it here? And I said, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, and it's called Your Revolution. It's a Facebook application. Um, that is, is sort of deals with the authenticity and the audience problem because it's in Facebook, which is, as everyone knows, highly credible. And, and it, it has tens of millions of users. Um, and, and what this does is it, it asks you about online uh, voting registration, which is available in two states right now, but I think it's coming soon to a state near you. Uh, but it's currently available in Washington, Arizona. 
So this application works in those two states, but since it's housed in Washington, we're virally generating it from, uh, from our little Seattle base. And what it does is if you install the widget, and if you go to your Facebook account, you can find the widget, just look for uh, your revolution. And it tells you, for example, it tells you a lot of things. It asks you things you're interested in because eventually it's going to ask you if you'd like to join networks of other people interested in those things on Facebook. Uh, but it also tells you of, of your friends who is and who isn't registered. And then it asks if you would like to invite your friends to register and invite your friends who are registered to see how many of their friends are and are not registered. So you see the viral possibilities here. And then you can send those friends who live in Washington and Oregon online registration pop-up forms so they can register in Facebook um, and, and uh, do other things as well. There are some issues we might want to talk about, such as is shaming your friends, your, especially your Facebook friends, uh, kind of the way we want to go about uh, getting others to, to register to vote. Uh, and, and there are lots of interesting related questions. Another project that we have going is called Becoming Citizens, in which University of Washington undergrads are developing uh, media skill sets in, in various areas to help local regional area teens communicate about public issues and about their own community concerns. Uh, and, and some of the skill sets involve just really basic things, such as online communication, uh, what, what makes for good communication. Do you have an email? turns out lots of kids, the kids we most want to reach, don't even have email, and so they are automatically excluded from a lot of online environments uh, that might be productive places for them. Uh, online safety, digital media literacy, public blogging, digital storytelling, and then advocacy strategies. And these are just some snapshots from some of the curriculum that the, the students have put together, and they go out and train area kids in how to use this. We're also working on online versions so we can see if, if it works online to self-train. Um, we've also built a, a, a platform, a digital site that the, actually we, the kids, designed it. We, we've recruited kids from the Seattle uh, area and um, offered them some skills. So we applied these skills pretty early on. And they designed a site called Puget Sound Off. They named it. Um, and designed it, and we are currently rolling out the beta version of it, and it's a place where young people can come and organize groups, communities, do art, poetry, music, um, talk about a lot of things that you would do in a more extended community than just politics, but politics is certainly in the mix. So this is what it looks like. Um, this is their design, and these are some of the stories. Um, We've got a community going on hip-hop music, and not just the music part of hip-hop, but also questions of misogyny in hip-hop and the politics of hip-hop. So kids are beginning to organize networks to talk about that. Um, abusive relationships turned out to be an important issue for a lot of kids who have figured out they're in one, or they know someone who's in one, and they want to talk about how you deal with that. And, and so these are examples of some of our um, videos and some of the issue networks that are coming. So I'm going to end with what, what the kids produced as the public service announcement for this site. 
and and this this is a, a video that they produced themselves but i think it conveys the sense of how they understand uh their own ideal uh digital media environment and um this is what they did except that it's not working I'll tell you what, I think I've got a copy of it on my desktop. Um, let's see if this works. Yeah. Oops. Where's the, oh, there's the play button, but I, it's hidden down here. Uh, nice. Huh? Spacebar is not going to do it. It's not doing it. What's being done to stop poverty in Seattle? Who else believes that President Bush is an alien? He's the next guard for a basketball game. Sound off. So, those are some ideas, and I welcome your questions at the end. Thanks. So next will be Ingeborg Enter. Actually, I should have explained at the beginning that the format will have each of the presenters speak for 15 minutes or so, then after the discussion, we'll then turn to the audience. I guess Ellen did explain that. So, Ingeborg. Thank you. Um, good evening. It's great to see the audience has grown a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk this evening about a topic that's quite dear to me, and uh, it is a very apropos topic for uh, civic en youth civic engagement, and that is the Computer Clubhouse. I worked at the Computer Clubhouse for about seven years, and uh, worked with many, many communities around the world. So I'll give you a little taste of what's going on in civic engagement in the clubhouses. First, I'll say that one of the reasons that clubhouses are important in this topic of civic engagement is that every clubhouse is rooted in their community. That's part of the point of how clubhouses operate. Um, the Clubhouse Network was started in 1993. The first Clubhouse was started in 1993 as a joint venture between Mitchell Resnick's lifelong kindergarten group here at the Media Lab and what was then the Computer Museum and now has uh, merged with the Museum of Science in Boston. So the Clubhouse is infused and from its very beginnings in constructionist learning philosophy. And what we call the learning model is one of the key aspects of the clubhouse uh, learning style. So we support, in the clubhouse, we support youth learning through design experiences. It's learning by doing. Uh, the young people are typically ages 10 to about 18. They do work with very high-end equipment, um, high-end computers and other types of equipment. 
we help youth build on their own interests, and that's very important too because young people are very passionate about and get very, very involved and engaged with things that they care about. The other important thing is to cultivate an emergent community of learners within a clubhouse. There are adults in the clubhouse. There's usually one or two paid staff, but many clubhouses have a variety of adult mentors who come and work with the young people, and they have various skills. Some of them are graphics professionals, computer science people. Some of them don't know a lot about computers and come to more engage with with the young people. And so it's a community where people learn from each other. And so the adults often learn as much from the young people as the other way around. So it's not a hierarchical learning community. Creating an environment of trust and respect is very important. Our target audience for computer clubhouses are underserved youth. Um, In the beginning, most of the clubhouses were in inner cities. Now, as the clubhouse network has grown, we have quite a number of clubhouses in rural areas as well. But young people in those communities are often not trusted and very often not respected. So to come to a place where they feel safe, both creatively and physically, is very, very important for them. And it's an important community experience for them to find that there are adults who trust them, who let them use equipment without a lot of caveats and, oh, no, don't do that. No is not a word we use very often in the clubhouse, and we find that this uh, respect and mutual trust often makes no not very relevant. One of the last important things is empowering youth with skills and self-actualization, the sense that they can do these various things that they thought only professionals could do. And that, in turn, enriches communities. And we feel that that's a really important uh, part of what clubhouses are all about. The clubhouse now, the clubhouse network now has 104 clubhouses in 21 countries, and you probably can't read all the country names, but as you see, we're all over the world, and the flagship clubhouse, the original clubhouse is located now at the Museum of Science here in Boston, and the clubhouse staff who interact and help clubhouses get started all over the world are based also at the Museum of Science. And there's a lot more that one can say, but I'm, I'm just trying to give you a, a taste of what this is. I'm going to give you a quick tour by the clubhouse members themselves, which I think will give you a better flavor. There's a clubhouse in Harlem in New York City, and they, the clubhouse members got together to make a video to welcome a new clubhouse that was coming into the network from Johannesburg in South Africa. So I'm going to play that for you. We have sound. Welcome to New York City, Johannesburg. Hey, get it online. Come on in. Oh, 
Can we get this now? When I heard about the computer club, I really wanted to get into it. It's a really good environment. It's really a, really a cool place. You get to do a lot of different things. You can build a website. Mostly what I do in here is writing. You could go to kids' picks. You can make your own games here. I'm like a joke person, so I like to make funny things. Put my face like on a, one of my favorite baseball players. It makes sure. Mine flow. I did this one first. Then next, I collected it and it came out like this. I love taking pictures and I love photography. You can even make your own movies here. Film whatever you want. Edit it, color it, make it move. You can have special effects to it. Everything that the big time movie producers do, you can do it. You could go to the studio, make up simple beats, and just put it together and it sound nice. Today is the day that Johannesburg comes to town. Welcome to Harlem, Johannesburg. I throw it, I give a welcome that you deserve. This is Harlem, hometown of fame and stardom. So flashy that it ain't seen the longest. So up jumps the boogie, down jumps the violence. Try it, continue you to the highest points to escalate and motivate your thoughts. Your mind is a spark like a light of torch. So let's get it. This is fun. Alright, so the kids are much more fluent about what they love than I am telling you. So the civic engagement part, for the early years of the clubhouse and often the early days of a clubhouse member's experience in a clubhouse, it's all about their own creative expression. And it's about collaboration. The, the young people work in groups uh, most of the time although they do spend a lot of time really focused on a particular job that they're working on, often their projects are quite collaborative. But recently there has been a real upsurge in, in com clubhouse communities where clubhouses are becoming much more involved in their neighborhoods and in their larger communities. Um, in many cases, clubhouses are actually serving as a community center. All of them are based in a community organization. They'll be in boys and girls clubs, they're in food banks, they're in local community centers. But often the clubhouse becomes the focal point for a community to get together and different community groups meet there. And the children are often um, translators, helpers, and, and, and they help to bring that community together. I'll tell you a couple of short stories that there are, this is just a teaser, there are many other wonderful stories of community engagement in clubhouses. Um, the Preserving Traditions on Tribal Lands is about a clubhouse in Arizona which is on uh, tribal lands and they're all Native Americans there and the young people f engaged some of the elders in recording uh, their traditional songs. Now this had never been done before because it was not allowed that these things should be recorded. But because it was their children and grandchildren who had requested this, and because those children and grandchildren had the 
technical skills, the recording studio, the equipment, and the skills to use them, they did record some of the traditional songs, and uh, that was very important for the community. In Dublin, a clubhouse in Blanchardstown, which is uh, a town within the city of Dublin, um, local elections were coming up, and a lot of the young people were talking about the fact that many of the things that were being voted on affected them very much, and yet they couldn't vote, and they felt they really didn't have a voice in what was happening. So they organized a voting day where they invited the candidates for all the local council offices to come to the clubhouse and the young people set up stations where they put their own issues and they put them in, in music and various other media. But their point was to let their voices be heard by the candidates. Even if they couldn't vote for the candidates, they could tell the candidates what young people were concerned about and were thinking about and what, what they cared about. And finally, um, there's a wonderful story about the clubhouse in Sao Paulo in Brazil, which is in, again, a, a very underserved community in what we would call a slum. Um, and they decided to get together and try to beautify their neighborhood, very local neighborhood. And so they worked on the plans for this for quite a while and decided to, um, to create an art project where they would uh, beautify the land. So I'm going to show you, this is a very long video, and I'm not going to show you the whole thing, but I'm going to show you a little bit, and I'll talk over it a little bit uh, while it's running. So the idea was that they were going to create a art alley. So it was an apprenticeship project where they were apprenticed to some local artists who are int being introduced here. And the idea was for them to create murals on this art alley. And they worked for weeks. Now you're, you're seeing the finished product here. But they worked for weeks to plan this, to uh, plan the themes, create the stencils, do the designs, do the actual painting. They did a lot of work in the clubhouse in preparation for this before it, uh, before it actually um, became real. also created uh, a music piece, a rap song and, and beats and stuff, which is also part of this video at the end. So that's our clubhouse in Brazil. So those, that's just a few little teasers. There are many other wonderful stories. And one of the things that I think about a lot now that I'm involved in the Center for Future Civic Media is what a rich, rich host of environments these clubhouses are 
as potential areas for civic engagement in their communities. And uh, I hope we can uh, be a good partner with them and create a lot of opportunities in the future. Thank you. And now we'll pass on to Alan Kezay. Good evening, everybody. It's uh, great to be here. I want to thank Ellen for inviting me. As she said, uh, I was a student of hers when I was in college years and years ago when she was teaching at Harvard. And she was a wonderful uh, teacher and mentor, and we became we become good friends. And so when she asked me to come to join you here at the Media Lab, I was uh, very excited to join you. Also, I love this institution. Uh, I love MIT. My father-in-law teaches here in the physics department, junior lab. My daughters learned to swim here at your wonderful pool. Uh, and I'm just so inspired by what the Media Lab is doing and this whole new effort around civic engagement and young people. Uh, I used to be a young leader. I still work with a lot of young people, so I think that's why Ellen asked me to be here. I do not pretend to be an expert on uh, uh, young people and civic engagement, but I am working on a new uh, project, which I want to share with you, and I am totally inspired. I'm inspired by the stuff that Lance talked about and that Ingeborg talked about, uh, what's going on here, uh, and what we're seeing that's emerging. Um, so I'd like to talk to you about uh, this new effort uh, that I've launched called Be the Change. Is that going? There we go. Good. Uh, just quickly, I want to talk to you about my own personal journey. I want to share with you thoughts about the need for a new public philosophy, a new methodology for making change, and a new generation of entrepreneurs. Uh, my own journey, uh, you know, where, where I came from, as uh, Mitch mentioned, uh, I co-founded an organization called City Year uh, a little over 20 years ago with my college roommate and best friend, Michael Brown. Uh, and City Year, our whole idea was to try to be an action tank, a model for uh, national service. Uh, our vision was that we would get to a place in our country where the most commonly asked question of an 18-year-old would be, where are you going to do your service year? And I spent some time working in presidential politics and on Capitol Hill in the early 1980s when I was in college and right out of college. And uh, as did my partner, Michael. And everybody said to us, even people that liked the idea said, well, how do you know it can work? And there was a lot of movement around the idea of national service in the early 1980s, uh, various programs getting started. And we said, well, let's try and create an organization that could help to role model that, to actually show people that you could. This was when you know, young people were branded the me generation, yuppies, greed is good, all that stuff going on in the country. We didn't believe any of that, that our peers we just felt like people weren't asking them to serve. Uh, could you get people to do it? Could you get the private sector to help pay for it? Could young people 18, 19, 20 do anything of value? Uh, and so we decided to set up City Year. It's for young people aged 17 to 24 to dedicate themselves for a year to full-time community service. Uh, started in 1988 right here in Boston with 50 young people for a summer. And today it's over 1,500 people operating in 17 cities in America and in South Africa. And we did help to play a role in inspiring AmeriCorps. Uh, and I did that for almost 20 years. Uh, and the turning point for me was just about five years ago now, in June of 2003, uh, the AmeriCorps program, which had been going on at that point for about uh, 10 years, uh, was cut by 80% overnight. And not because of anything that a single one of the more than 1,000 AmeriCorps programs around the country did, but because of partisan politics and bureaucratic mismanagement in Washington. 80% uh, funding cut. Uh, the week that they were supposed to announce the grants, they said, oh, sorry, we just don't have the money. Uh, and so I got together with some friends in the service movement, and we organized this big campaign to save it 
and we did sort of a grass tops and a grassroots effort, basically leveraging our collective networks around that. And the good news was is that uh, we got half the money back for that year so that programs could sort of continue. And then we got all the money back for the following year, plus $100 million, uh, which was a, a big increase. The program overall was funded at about a $300 million level. So it was a very significant increase to make up for the cuts. And in response to this big campaign we did, we did grass tops. We got 44 governors. We got 150 mayors. We got 100 editorials written, in, you know, starting right here with the Boston Globe. Uh, and then the grassroots side, we did a citizen petition. We did rallies around the country. And, and the big thing we did was we sort of did Mr. Smith Comes to Washington Made Real. We brought uh, citizens from 47 states, including Alaska, uh, came to Washington, and we did 100 hours of round-the-clock testimony. We essentially did a citizen's hearing on Capitol Hill straight through the night for more than four days because uh, we figured if we couldn't get our leaders in Washington to come visit these programs and see the impact, we'll bring them to them. And that effort led to this restoration. That was the good news. The bad news is we all went back to our day jobs, which was not to run this kind of advocacy effort or this grass tops, grassroots effort. It was to run these programs. And every year since, it's been cut. Not by 80%, by about 10 to, 10 to 15%. And by the time this administration leaves office, we'll be right back to where we were. Uh, and so watching that, I thought, you know, there's got to be another way to make change. And my initial idea was to sort of create city to help bring about universal national service. But there's got to be a better way. So I went back and thought about Gandhi. And uh, I'm a student of Gandhi. Uh, and Gandhi had a threefold strategy for building a fair, just, democratic society. What he called the spinning wheel, the ballot, and the jail. The spinning wheel is service, and Gandhi actually said it started with that. It's what Syria is about, it's what AmeriCorps is about, it's about what people will, are willing to do to just get involved and try to make a difference in their communities. Uh, and it starts there. But he also said there were two other legs to the stool, the ballot and the jail. The ballot for Gandhi was political activity. You know, not just voting, but getting involved in the political and policy process. Uh, and then the jail was civil disobedience or mass citizen action, which is ultimately how Gandhi led India to freedom. It's what Martin Luther King did uh, in the civil rights movement here. And so what I'm trying to do now with this new organization is can you put that sort of theory of change into action with Be the Change? And it's in a context of uh, where we are today. Uh, I think we need a new public philosophy. We need a new approach to solving problems. And if you think about it, in the past 75 years, we've lived essentially under two public philosophies. First, you had FDR, who in his uh, second inaugural address, after serving as president for four years, said, I have complete faith in the capacity of government to solve problems once considered unsolvable. And we basically lived under that public philosophy through Republicans and Democrats until Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan came in with his inaugural address and said just the opposite. Government isn't the solution, it's the problem. So, you know, full circle from FDR. And even Clinton, who was a Democratic president, you know, he said in 1996, the era of big government is over. And so I think what we need now is a new public philosophy. How do we solve problems? And this is what this whole notion, I think, of civic engagement is about. And what are we going to do in the 21st century? Well, I think the elements of that new public philosophy are threefold. First of all, and this is what excites me so much about this, this topic, we need massive citizen engagement. We are living in an unprecedented time for citizens to become involved, I think, in two ways, both in service uh, through a universal voluntary national service program. That's what I've been working on for the past 20 years, where you know, 
when people turn 18, they'd be challenged, given the opportunity to spend a year in full-time service. But then also people continuing to volunteer and be involved through their lives. Citizens en masse attacking problems. That's one piece. The other piece of it, and Lance talked about this, uh, and Ingeborg talked about it even with, with her students, we also need people to start doing what Harry Truman challenged us to do when he left the White House. There's a famous story that when Truman left the White House, a reporter called out to him and said, Mr. President, what are you going to do now that you're leaving the highest office in the land? And Truman, who was one of the most humble people who ever hold that office, didn't aspire to it, right away responded, I'm not leaving the highest office. I'm assuming the highest office, that of citizen. Now, what did he mean by that? Not just service, but not just voting, but being engaged, being involved, caring about issues, committing yourself, feeling that you actually have an office as a citizen. Uh, and I think what's going on now with technology in particular and with young people if people could start holding that office, that's key to a new public philosophy. The second thing I think is we need a new system for social entrepreneurship. I won't get into this in detail, but there's just this, this abundance of social entrepreneurs who are inventing new solutions. Teach for America, City Year, Public Allies, Jumpstart, Citizen Schools, a lot of them started right here in Boston, by the way. Year Up, Bell, Youth Build, Harlem's Children's Zone. It's, it's extraordinary. But what we need to do is we need to build a system to scale those things up that's akin to the private sector system for entrepreneurs. I think that I spent a year traveling around the world 10 years ago, and what my wife and I, Vanessa Kirsch, discovered was is that the reason, at least our, our theory was, the reason we dominate the global economy is because we have the best entrepreneurial system. If you're an entrepreneur, we have such a great system, people leave other countries to come here, like the Google guys, to start their companies because we have such a great system. We need a similar system so that when a Wendy cop invents a Teach for America, it doesn't take 20 years to just get to 5,000 teachers when we have a shortage we're going to have over the next 10 years of 2 million. We're going to need 2, two million new teachers. It should be scaled up much faster. She's getting now, for example, 30,000 people, the best and the brightest, applying to Teach for America. She only has the resources to take 5,000. So we need to have a system that will scale up these innovations. And then finally, I think we need to have a new role for government and a new role for the nonprofit and private sector. We need new partnerships that understand FDR may have been right for his time, but government alone can't solve these problems. But also understand that what Reagan said doesn't apply to today either. And I think, I think the end of the Reagan philosophy was Katrina. I think we all realized when we saw like thousands of our fellow citizens you know, abandoned. And if you've been to New Orleans, by the way, even two and a half years later, there hasn't been enough progress at all in the richest country in the world. When you have denigrated government for 27 years, government failed at every level, federal, state, local. And it's interesting. It's actually been a lot of the voluntary groups that have come in. Uh, but I think we all sort of woke up and realized, well, okay, that philosophy isn't working anymore either, and it's a new time. So I think we need a new public philosophy. How does this connect? I think the millennials are going to lead us to this new public philosophy. They are a different generation. They are looking at problem solving in a different way. They, are, they have the potential to be the next greatest generation. They are volunteering and participating at higher rates than any other generation. Uh, 50 of them, million of them are going to be voters. And they are turning on. I mean, Lance talked about this. It's interesting. There are new ways to participate. You see what's happening with the Obama campaign uh, in terms of appealing to young voters in particular. Uh, and 70% of them still believe politics is relevant. 84% of young people are, are paying significant attention to the presidential campaign. That's up from just 58% from just a year ago. So they are getting engaged. Um, 
By 2018, the millennials will be 90 million strong. The baby boomers, who have dominated this country for the past you know, 30, 40 years, are 75 million strong. The millennials are going to overtake, and you, you know the impact the baby boomers have had. Millennials are going to overtake the baby boomers. Um, and 71% of them think political engagement is an effective way of solving important issues. But they're, they're interesting. They're not as ideological. They're more about what works. They're more about can we get solutions uh, and push those. Um, so uh, what I'm trying to do with Be the Change is, is look at a new methodology for attacking problems. Uh, and part of our hope is to engage the millennials, but frankly engage all citizens who are interested in this. Um, I mentioned that, and our approach is something that uh, I'm calling meta-action tanking. And what I mean by this is, how do you affect policy change in this country? Well, we have think tanks. And they're effective, and they can work. And their strategy is basically get really smart people who will come up with really good ideas, and then they sort of do their advocacy efforts with elites in Washington, usually. Or if they're at the state-level elites, at the state level. Uh, what Michael and I did with City, or what some other social entrepreneurs are trying to, trying to do, is become action tanks. We sort of took the think tank idea around a particular issue, national service, what should it look like, and then put it into action, and use that to help inspire a new public policy. In our case, it was AmeriCorps. And what you can do with that, what I've learned now, after 20 years of trying to push City Air to universal national service, is that an organization as an action tank can often bring about policy innovation. But it's hard to affect the whole system. And what I learned from the Save AmeriCorps crisis was what I'm now calling meta-action tanking. What, what, what saved AmeriCorps was that all of these different groups, all these different organizations, and then citizens and leaders who cared, combined their efforts combine their resources. And that was enough to affect the system. And interestingly, when those cuts first happened, we talked to the political leaders in Washington, even our friends, and they said, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. We're not in power. There's a war going on. There's a massive budget deficit. And, you know, this is a good program. But, but once the sort of grass tops and the grassroots got engaged, the system moved, and the program was saved. And so this is sort of the... But the key to this is, ultimately... The grass tops and the grassroots is can you get enough critical mass of citizens who care around big issues to move the system? And I think that's what the, the sort of new opportunity presents us. I also think when it comes to the millennials, we are on the cusp of a new breed of entrepreneurs that are emerging, um, what I call civic advocacy entrepreneurs, for lack of a better word. And here's an analogy. The Echoing Green Foundation, with only $3 million a year, provided essentially the venture capital, and it was started by a venture capitalist, the social venture capital, to launch a whole generation of these incredible social entrepreneur organizations, all with grants of about $100,000 over two years. It was basically, here's just money, so frankly, you can tell your parents, actually, you can pay your rent, and you can you know, afford to, to, to your food, and you can just dedicate yourself full-time to your project. You look at these things that have been spawned by Echoing Green. Bell, Project Health, Global Fund for Children, Ella Baker Center of Human Rights, Jumpstart, Public Allies, Teach for America, College Summit, City, etc. It's extraordinary. The social entrepreneurship movement has a lot of steam, and it's growing, and it's needed. And as I said, I think we need a whole new system for that. And we need young people and older people to continue to be social entrepreneurs. But there's a new thing that's emerging um, on the landscape, what I'm calling civic advocacy entrepreneurs. And it's being driven by the millennial generation. And what's interesting, they've come up of age at a different time. They've come up of age participating in the service movement. And this has had an effect. There's been 20 years now of a service movement. And a lot of them 
get involved in service, and then they get turned on to an issue. It's amazing the number of Teach for America alumni, for example, that have become leaders in education reform. Starting charter schools, uh, Michelle Rhee, who's the superintendent of schools in D.C., is a TFA alum. The people who started the KIPP academies, et cetera, and that's just one you know, example. They've had the, their defining events have been different. 9-11, Katrina, the tsunami, these you know, gigantic events all happening within a, a space of just a few years. They're, the defining issues are much bigger and they're global and they, they require a different kind of approach. It's not just, you know, uh, it takes global cooperation, frankly, whether it's AIDS, global warming, climate change, war on terrorism, the globalization, et cetera. And they're, they're growing up in an atmosphere of Web 2.0, as Lance talked about. Facebook, MySpace, YouTube, Google, the whole open source uh, revolution. And it's a very different kind of of uh, world they're, they're, they're emerging into, and they're driving it. And what's happening is you're starting to get these younger people who are becoming civic advocacy entrepreneurs. In other words, they, they see an issue, and unlike social entrepreneurs, they're not just trying to put an organization to solve it, they are building advocacy networks. There's a group, uh, Step It Up, that was six students right out of Middlebury who launched a national day of action around climate change, happened a year ago, almost exactly in April. Uh, that has now led to One Sky, which got launched for $50 million to fight climate change. It's all about a grassroots movement. There's another group, I'll, just one more minute. There's another group, Genocide Intervention Network, started on a college campus at Haverford with a few students. It's now got 1,000 chapters on college campuses. Uh, and they are, are one of the key leading groups in the whole Save Darfur effort. There's uh, others that are coming. There's ServeNext. I won't go into this. Started by three city or alumni, three people, full-time, they got every single Democratic candidate to pledge to grow AmeriCorps by 100,000 people, more than doubling the program. McCain doesn't sign pledges, but he said, I've got a bill that will do better than that. And they've had more impact on the national service issue than the 1,000 AmeriCorps programs because they're having an advocacy approach. So I guess I would conclude with just saying that this is an incredibly exciting time. Uh, things are being invented. Uh, it's moving so quickly, it's hard to even keep track of it. Um, but that I think it's important that we figure out new ways to support, especially the millennial generation through this kind of civic advocacy effort, that we think about new ways to engage citizens to get involved in the policy and political process, uh, and that we keep uh, open to the kind of you know, revolutionary change that's possible uh, if we continue to, to encourage it. Thank you. I thank the panelists, and maybe I'll kick it off with one question, then we'll open it up to the audience to ask other questions. One thing that was going through my mind as I was listening, and we hear some great examples of, you know, of how young people gain deeply engaged with bring, in, in their communities, bringing about change, and we see the great potential and a tremendous interest and a growing interest, I think we'd all agree with Alan, you know, from young people today. You know, we also hear, as Lance was saying, that there is an issue about learning to engage. Even if there's this great interest, it doesn't mean that things will just happen automatically. I'd like to ask the panelists, what is it that needs to be done if, we're, if there still is a, a challenge how to help people learn to engage and become engaged civically? What are the most important things we can do uh, as a society to support and to help uh, support that type of learning to engage? Um, a lot. The, the, for example, we just as educators have spent decades coming up with 
learning standards for schools. We could think about learning standards for civic environments online. Um, and and what's, what new ones do we need if citizenship and identity are changing and online communities offer different kinds of political organization potential? What kinds of learning opportunities could be promoted? And then what kinds of skills? I think civic skills are really important. A lot of kids don't know what a blog is, why they'd ever use one. Perhaps by the time we've taught kids how to blog, nobody will be blogging anymore, but that's not really the... The problem is to, to encourage kids to communicate effectively, to organize. How do kids know how to organize? I mean, the entrepreneurs are exceptional, but I would like to see more kids become exceptional in an entrepreneurial way. So all of those things. And then to become advocates for their causes. And which kids? I mean, I, I think there are a lot of kids who, who are at risk for doing these things, and I would like to think very hard about how to get more of the kids who are unlikely to want to or imagine they can participate to become effective advocates for issues that, that are really important to them. So, so there's a whole set of things that we, all of us, can, can do. I would add two things to what Lance said. I agree with all that is in just reference what I was just talking about. I think one way is if we did institute, if we had more of a universal voluntary national service system, starting in kindergarten, you know, so there's service learning in all schools and then with an opportunity for full-time participation at that sort of critical life age, 18 to 25, and then ongoing opportunities all the way through the boomer years. But what we found with City Year is that our graduates vote at much higher rates than their peers. They continue to be to volunteer at much higher rates. They contribute, and they don't make a lot of money because a lot of them go to the nonprofit sector, but they contribute to political and other causes at four times the rate of their peers. They uh, maintain and develop friendships with people from diverse backgrounds. Ninety-plus percent of them do that. They are much more active citizens. It does work. If, if you spend a year essentially as a full-time active-duty citizen when you're doing national service, you become more civically engaged. There's a new study that, uh, that the Corporation for National Service is going to be putting out just in a couple of weeks that actually has similar data for AmeriCorps as a whole. So one way to do this is if we did have a more universal national service opportunity, people would learn these skills. You can't... You can't learn citizenship by just reading about it in a book. And I think what Lance was talking about, how we've got to change how we teach, is right on. You've got to do it. The second thing, as I mentioned, we need to come up with new ways to support young people who want to do civic advocacy. Because with they, these entrepreneurs, like I mentioned, you know, the, the uh, Genocide Intervention Network, it started with a handful of people at Haverford. It's now 1,000 chapters on campuses. But because what the entrepreneurs do is they build these organizations that then give other people a chance to be involved. They don't, you know, and so if we could come up with new, if philanthropists and others said, you know what, we're going to help fund these things, the way Echo and Green is done with social entrepreneurs, the young people themselves, and you could give these grants even at college level, you can even give them at high school level. The young people themselves will develop the organizations that will then get their peers involved to become more civically engaged. Um, one of the things, is this on? Does it yeah. matter? <laughs> As an underpinning to what both Lance and Alan said, I'm thinking about younger children and what we can do for younger children to encourage them to have the skills that they'll need to organize and, and to be uh, good citizens. And I, I see some projects emerging in our center right now that are that are built around storytelling and learning empathy and understanding your community, understanding who you are within your community and understanding the dynamics of your community and the history of your community. 
And I think um, with middle school, well, from from as young as necessary, as soon as children start learning, uh, both in after-school environments and in school environments, I believe it's really important to stress those skills of understanding both ourselves and where we come from and and the history of our community. So I think um, it's, it's very interesting to see that a lot of... Uh, projects are emerging along those lines. I'll just make one comment when Lance was mentioning about learning to organize. One thing that's striking to me in the current presidential campaign, first of all, I think it's rather remarkable for the first time having a leading presidential candidate who started out early in his life as a community organizer. But one thing that's even more striking is, in conversations I've had, is how little people understand what it means to be a community organizer. So I think the fact that Obama was a community organizer, people don't really have a real sense of that of what it means, and it, to me it just touches on the fact that people don't have a real sense of the activity of organizing and being actively engaged in community. And so it sort of highlights the importance of a type of uh, helping to get, give people a better understanding, help people develop a better understanding of ways they can be involved in community. So let's turn to the audience. There, are, I think there are microphones on a couple of sides, so we could just raise your hand and the microphones can... Hello. Uh, my name's Emily Lin. I'm a student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a Reynolds Fellow in Social Entrepreneurship. Um, my, I have two questions. The first one is pretty short. Um, I'm just wondering what you think the unique role of youth is in civil society. Um, traditionally, it seems maybe that their role is for labor and then also to provide security for the older generation. Um, but it seems maybe there's a shift in the ways you're talking about um, youth voice being expressed. So how are youth, youth unique in civil society as opposed to adults who may also be using these tools? Second question is um, about scale and the relationship between the public and, public and private sector in terms of getting to scale. Um, I think in the Roosevelt generation, scale was definitely seen as a, a public effort, and now it seems there's a shift to the private sector. For example, using Facebook for authenticity and audience, as you were talking about. Um, and to me, that's, there are a lot of interesting opportunities there, but there are also a lot of pitfalls. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Thank you. Go ahead. <coughs> Two really great questions. Um, an anecdote about the role of youth. I mean, I think youth voice has not typically been loud or particularly effectively organized. But the, the professionalization of the political communication process has depressed it even more because professional campaign managers typically have not addressed messages to young people because they're not cost-effective. And so, so that means that young people are not <coughs> invited to vote by most candidates. Obama's an interesting exception, and indeed giving them networking capacities is an even more interesting move, I think. But, but in terms of what the youth voice could be, I think we're also seeing it in some of the participatory media networking that's going on in this campaign. It's a very interesting voice. I mean, it makes the campaign more fun, and it's more engaging. It's uh, something that, that young people are creating content in, uh, which is unusual, and I think they're doing it very effectively. But I think that there's an even bigger civil society role for young people. I mean, our schools are a catastrophe. I mean, it, a, a shame on this nation. And who <coughs> suffers it most? 
students. And, and, and how can we help students become advocates for school reform, I think, could be an, an enormously, I mean, that's just one example of how young people could have an enormously effective voice if given the skills to, to learn to express it in, in focused and, and really high-impact ways. So I think that youth voice could be much more creative and, and probably convince people more than our current efforts at school reform are doing, because they're obviously uh, not working. So as, as for Facebook and the commercialization process, also a very important question. Um, there are limits in Facebook. The, the students who did Your Revolution and got that widget into Facebook had to go through a lot of negotiations with Facebook to change some of the limits that Facebook imposes on those kinds of viral possibilities. Um, and so one of the reasons that we're building a platform in Seattle that's non-commercial uh, is to make sure that it stays that way and that, that commercialization doesn't creep in. But, but kids are in Facebook, and so I think it's important to go there as well. Well, Emily, in answer to your first question, I think that's a really tough one because I see many areas where youth are really empowered and much more so than in in older among older generations but i see a great disparity this the sorts of social engagement and all the organizations that are bubbling up um that alan mentioned is a really encouraging phenomenon and it is bubbling down to younger people but i see a really great disparity among the economic uh, situation of young people, even though many people feel that the di digital divide is no longer a big issue, the economic divide is becoming a much huger issue. And I think among young people who are not as privileged, who don't have computers at home, who don't have the kind of really good education that the more privileged youngsters get, um, that to me is, is really disturbing. because, And that's one of the reasons why I find what I see happening in Computer Clubhouse is so powerful is because these are usually the young people who are not empowered, who are often ignored because of their financial status. So... I think that, in general, there is a movement to empower young people much more, and often it's their own energy that's doing that empowering. But I do think we leave too many behind because of the uh, economic uh, disparities. Uh, I think that's absolutely right what Ingeborg's saying. I, I would uh, just add, Emily, that I think the role for young people in civil society is absolutely essential. And, you know, historically... Young people have always been at the forefront of big efforts for change. I mean, Martin Luther King was 26 when he led the Montgomery bus boycott. Nelson Mandela was 26 when he co-founded the ANC Youth League. Alice Paul was 28 when she co-founded the Congressional uh, Union for Women's Suffrage. Cesar Chavez was 19 when he started his first labor union. Uh, but it wasn't just those leaders. It was the young people who went and did the sit-ins and the marches and the freedom rides and civil rights. It was young people who led the effort uh, on the environmental movement. It was young people who led the effort to, you know, against the war. Uh, it's always been young people because, you know, face it, as you get older, you, just, you know, you get, if you're married, you have a house, you've got children, you just get, A, you're just not 
able to have the time. B, you just get more conservative. You, you, you start to lose your sense of what's possible. Um, and so I think it's very important that, uh, and that's why I'm so thrilled about what's happening politically this year. Uh, and I think, you know, what, what Lance was talking about, like this Puget sound off and this online voting, the tools that are available now for young people to organize and get their voice heard are unprecedented. And uh, I think all of us who have a chance need to encourage that and push them to, frankly, hold us all accountable to the kind of world that we could have. In terms of the scaling question, uh, you're absolutely right. And this gets back to what I was talking about before in terms of a new role for government. It used to be that we scaled government scaled government programs. And that's what we look to. Uh, I think what we need now is we do need to scale things. That's a key issue. But government has to change from scaling government programs to providing money to scale social entrepreneurial efforts, to scale great nonprofits, to scale new public-private partnerships. So rather than the government doing it all itself, and again, I don't think it's all government of FDR and it's no government of Reagan, it's a new role, where if you can show measurable results, like a Teach for America or a Jump Start or a Citizen Schools or Harlem's Children's Zone or, or a whole number of things that actually do work and get results, Bell Foundation, that the government will take its money and help to scale those things uh, in a very strategic way. Most government funding is either done on formula basis, which is just population, or politically. It's not focused on what work and you know what works, what doesn't work, and how do we really take these things to scale. Uh, and that's a key key issue, especially as we're trying to solve these problems. Other questions? Hi. Um, oh, that was loud. My name is Fawn, and I have a question uh, following up on what Ingeborg Enter was saying about empowering youth. Um, my question is, I, I used to mentor at the clubhouse when I was a student, and when I got a day job, uh, I couldn't do it anymore because I couldn't be there during the hours when it was open. So my question is, how can we as citizens help to support the empowerment of youth in a grassroots way? That's a very good question. Thank you, Fawn. The, it's hard. I know in clubhouses, and, and you've experienced this yourself as a mentor, it's very difficult to get mentors because of our clubhouse hours. Clubhouses typically open after school around 3 they go to six or seven or eight, depending on the community. But often those are the hours when, when working people are working. And uh, we rely very heavily in areas where there are students. We rely on graduate students, college students. We rely on retired people in some places. And uh, another really great resource is the young people themselves when they grow too old to be considered members. Uh, they graduate from high school and then they, they're not considered members anymore and they don't want to leave. So they're, they're sort of graduated to become mentors. But even they become involved in jobs and, and other responsibilities and can't do it. And I think, you know, you, Alan, you might have some ideas about the whole social... Um, volunteerism, uh, social change. It requires a lot of people. It's hard sometimes to get the manpower, the woman power that you need because of 
as you say, people become busy. They have other responsibilities. So I would say that uh, an interesting example that I've seen at uh, some clubhouses is companies who give their employees uh, a certain amount of free time during the days to allow them to volunteer in places like that. Flexibility like that um, in the workplace um, might be a good solution, but it is it is an issue for I believe many many uh, social organizations that are working for change. I don't know if you have answers to that. Well, it's just difficult what, you know, problem. People say when you have a you know if you're a hammer everything's a nail. I mean my biggest issue is national service, um, and so I think you know one way to do this is. If we had a system where a million young people mm-hmm. a year were in full-time service, uh, I mean, we've seen, it's, it's, it's been modeled now in a small way with AmeriCorps, there are 70,000 a year, but what, what those full-time people do, A, they can help coordinate volunteers. So, I mean, because it does take work, you know, mm-hmm. even, if, even if you want to volunteer, where do you go, how do you sign up, what hours can you fit them in, are the materials there to help, you know, so that's one thing they can do. They can also do a lot of the direct service work. I mean, you know, we, what we realized with City Year is that that age group, 17 to 24, is the perfect age group for kids who are 6 to 16 because they're young enough that they can still relate. They know what music they're listening to and what clothes are hot and who the hip-hop artists are and all that stuff. But they're old enough that those younger kids look at them as total role models. And so if we had a more scaled-up uh, system, you could provide that kind of person power. And then it gets back to how do you mentor young people and how do you get them engaged? Well, the best people to be doing it are people who are you know, not much older than they are and who can help encourage them and relate to them. And um, So again, you know, part of the reason I'm such an advocate for that is that I think it would, A, you, get, you could solve a lot of problems with that energy, but you, it's a continual sort of uh, youth mentoring youth uh, and youth bringing along youth resource. Um, and then the other thing that we've seen is once people do that, then they continue to be those volunteers as they get And I think work release time is a number of companies are doing that. I also think the next big frontier for service, by the way, is the baby boom generation. People are living longer, they're healthier, they've got incredible skills, um, and that there should be a new opportunity in particular to encourage and support baby boomers who aren't retiring, who are looking for encore careers to get involved uh, uh, in these kind of efforts. One thing that does come to my mind is just the importance of not just thinking of how individuals get involved in community, but how institutions get involved in their local communities. Mm-hmm. So some of the things they're talking about, about work release time, I mean, there are a lot of companies now. There's part of a sense of corporate responsibility to make donations mm-hmm. to their local community. There are far fewer who will give the flexibility for their employees to get deeply engaged. And in my mind, that would be even more important. I mean, obviously, I don't want to cut off the corporate contributions as well. Right. But certainly, the, I think, to, to rethink what it means for institutions to be meaningfully involved in their local communities and having their employees play important roles such as you know, mentoring or you know, teaching apprenticeships in citizen schools could be really perhaps one of the most important ways. Also, the way schools get engaged in their local communities. There are too many schools that you know, you know, you know, you know, shut their doors you know, at, the, at the end when the last bell rings, where in fact they could be round-the-clock community centers. And we start to see some of that happening, but it's a real challenge in that there are all these different you know, rules and regulations and constraints that make it difficult for schools as institutions to get more deeply engaged in the community, where in fact they really could play an important role of having people of all ages you know, at you know, later hours in the afternoon and the evening come together in, in, in ways. 
Um, hi, my name is Jason. I'm a graduate student in CMS. Um, and uh, Mitchell, you actually bring up a good point, which is that there are a lot of rules and regulations. And um, I think that the millennials are succeeding in their sort of, uh, you know, their active engagement uh, in, in spite of, did I lose my sound here? In spite of the, uh, the government, not, you know, because of it. And I think that the quote that you mentioned earlier, Alan, about um, Reagan, um, you know, the government is the problem, not the solution. And I think that that's an attitude that's still very much held by young people um, in many regards. And this particular election cycle did seem to see a new resurgence in fiscal conservatism among uh, those under, you know, the 18 to 25 crowd. Um, I'm wondering, you know, when you said that, you know, the government should use its money to support uh, social entrepreneurship, it's not really their money, it's our money. And so I'm wondering how would you feel about instead of the government, you know, continuing to tax and then distribute money as it sees fit, but instead to support uh, a tax credit for supporting people at the local level. So for example, I could give, uh, you know, the computer clubhouse, you know, money each year and have that come off my taxes. I, I think we need to do both. I think we need to do both. I think tax credits are great. Um, uh, the reality is that there is a lot of money in the government right now. I don't think it's being uh, uh, utilized as effective. I think part of the reason there's been a backlash against government involvement is because there is there are big bureaucracies and and a lot of funding is done politically. I mean, you know, earmarks are the best example. You know, thirty billion dollars—that's all political money. Um, but even within the existing system, now I'm not saying all government programs are bad. I just think that there is a new. Uh, competitive citizen sector. Bill Drayton is the guy who's really pushed this. He's a genius who started Ashoka. That's coming into being. There, there is an infrastructure now that didn't exist, certainly in 1935. It didn't even exist in the 1960s of these social entrepreneurs and more every day. And so there, there is a place now where strategically, even if you just open it up to more competition, there are a number of, of places where as a social entrepreneur you can't even compete for the funding. Um, because you're not sort of an established within the guideline program. So I think we need to do both. I think we should have tax credits, but I think it, it would be amazing if, if you even just took, you know, 2% of the various federal departments and said, we're going to have a What Works Fund or a Scale uh, Social Innovation Fund and carve out just a little bit of money for these entrepreneurs that are inventing new solutions. They have to meet metrics. They have to get results. You could even do the funding based on, you know, if you're – if you say you're going to teach more kids to read and you don't get them to read, well, then you lose your funding on a much more competitive basis. But um, I think that's where we have to go um, because it can't all be done by private philanthropy. There's just the resources aren't there. And even through tax credits, the, the resources won't be there. Um, that's why I think we need to sort of look at, at, at both strategies. Could I have just a quick one? Just as another model, um, I should talk a little bit about the uh, Puget Sound off funding situation because you, you don't build a pretty ambitious uh, web environment for free. And, and the city of Seattle, I think, should be credited. They're one of the partners in, in this project. And when they uh, offered a cable license renewal to Comcast, they asked Com Comcast to contribute a half a million dollars to a public media uh, fund for the city. And, and then it was decided that that youth engagement would be the most suitable deployment of that money. And so the, the, the Comcast 
ended up paying for this nonprofit, uh, commercial-free youth media environment. And I, and I think that every city could be thinking in these kinds of terms. I mean, it's, it's an easy model. Um, cable environments or uh, licenses are incredibly lucrative. And uh, the question is whether cities would think about funding public media in various forms for citizen engagement. I mean, Seattle tends to invite citizens to participate. Um, and so it's a fairly active city. And this is another example of how that was uh, supported. My name is David Wallace. I have a day job as a communications consultant uh, for a company called Game Change that I started. And I also teach journalism at Emerson College uh, this semester to teenagers. Uh, the fundamental issue of eat your vegetables, nice to do versus got to do, is a subject I'd like you to address. Because the basic nature of social network, a lot of these uh, volunteer opportunities, are things that people want to do and they'll find a way to make the time or make the, uh, the income if they decide to pursue it as a career. But the extent to which youth, as a broadly over general term, need instant results, things they want to do versus things they have to do, and use tools, particularly technology <coughs> tools, to the extent that they're uh, able as opposed to challenging themselves to keep going and learning more and doing more uh, that are issues of force rather than issues of choice uh, is an issue that I, th I see students taking a path of least resistance oftentimes as opposed to challenging themselves. And I wonder if that's an issue that you've seen in terms of the eat your vegetables, nice to do versus got to do in engagement of we'll only do as much as we really want to, but don't force us to do more. I guess I'd like to put in a word for the motivated students who make all of the projects I'm involved with happen. Uh, and I understand that, there, that you know, service learning sometimes becomes, uh, well, it's a requirement, and sometimes it's used more to pad a CV or resume than, than it, as a serious commitment. But on the other hand, it does produce some lifelong kinds of, of commitments. The thing that I discovered in, in our undergraduate intern program is that the more I turned it over to the students, the more they wanted to stick with it. So I've got students who don't get credit anymore because they can't get any more credits for doing internships who still are there developing media skills and going out and, and enjoying it. And some of them I've actually put on the payroll now. So. I guess they figured out if they stick around long enough, they'll get a job. Uh, but it's wonderful because they keep me motivated. I mean, I, I, I end up being energized by the fact that they are so excited about being given the opportunity to develop content and share it with young people and see what's working and go back to the drawing boards and, and make it better. So that process, I think, really gets them over the eat your peas. I mean, I don't sense any of that. There, none of them are there. I've got, you know, 75 or so interns a year, and, and I can't handle that many, really, many of whom are not getting credit anymore, and they're out there doing things, and they show up and ask what else they can do. So I think there's some motivation there, and I, don't, I, I see these as, as exceptional human beings, each and every one, but, but I don't think they're exceptional in terms of, you know, the, the, that's all the number that we're going to get doing this stuff. I think it can scale pretty widely. Actually, one thing I would just add is that I think one thing we find over and over in working with youth, but also people of all ages, is 
given the opportunity to work on things they're passionate about, people will put an incredible amount of time and, you know, and people who are seen as having attention problems or lack of interest will go deeply involved when they work on things they're passionate about. But unfortunately, many people spend too much of their time work on things they aren't passionate about. And we do see that with some of the volunteerism today that sometimes people are doing it because they're supposed to be doing it or, or you know, they know that it's a good thing to do. But I think that's one thing that we take as a challenge. Actually, I was recently at a conference with a lot of community foundations who were addressing this issue where they saw a rise in local of young people volunteering, but a lot of times they weren't being matched up with things they were passionate about. And this is one thing we then talked about. Could there be a role for new technology to try to help people match up with the things they were passionate about? So there is this you know, interest in volunteering you know, if you can find things you really are passionate about. But it's not always easy to find those, and I think we need to do a better job of helping people find the things that they're most passionate about and be able to make the connections, because I think things will just work you know, when you can find those, when the right connections with passions. Yeah, Mitch stole all the good lines, but I think <laughs> I, I got them from him to begin with, so that's okay. But I would say also that this, this, this is such a key component of the education process, whether it's in school or in an after-school setting like a clubhouse. A skill, it takes a skilled teacher or youth worker to be able to do those matchups and find out for the various students, uh, children that they're working with, what, what is that point, how to draw them out, how to find what really engages them, what really gets them excited, and to be able to then uh, work with that and encourage that and, and often use that enthusiasm to, to learn other things. Often we find that young people who get involved in computer programming with, with a, a program like Scratch, which is a very intuitive and, and graphic way of programming, they start learning math and stuff and they realize, oh, I, I, just, I just did a math thing. I didn't think I liked math. But, so there are, you know, it, but, it, but it does take skilled human beings to, to do that intervention. I don't know if we'll ever find technology that can do that, maybe. But um, that, I think that's really key. Uh, hi, my name is Lana Swartz, and I'm a graduate student here at MIT, and I'm also a Teach for America alum. Um, so I'm going to be playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, even against my own experience in some ways. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting that the emphasis um, from the first two projects was about giving youth, particularly underprivileged youth, the tools for having a voice in, a, in the civic sphere and the opportunity for service learning um, and the opportunity to grow from that. And um, the, the same thing goes, though, in the latter, in the Teach for America pro type of programs in AmeriCorps, um, city year, the stakes are much higher because young people, typically from a much more privileged background, are going beyond media cre creation to work in communities. Um, and so I wonder then if the primary goal is to provide service for that community or to give those young people the experience of full-time citizenship, of service learning, um, even as they serve in communities that are much less privileged than the ones they likely came from. Um, so I wonder, 
if you could talk a little bit about how important accountability is, uh, what does it mean to be, to go back to Mitch's question, a community organizer, and you have to be a member of that community, and then what constitutes community membership? Uh, well, thank you for your service through TFA, first of all. That's, that's tremendous that, that you committed two years of your life to do that. Um, uh, a couple things. First of all, TFA is one model. And I think we need to have a range of models. Um, you know, City Year, for example, we have an extremely diverse group of, of young people. Uh, they come from all different socioeconomic levels, uh, working class, middle class, upper class, all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, all different faiths, inner city and suburban. We've got former gang members working alongside prep school graduates. And, and our whole approach was actually to show that national service can be a vehicle to build common ground and bring people together. Uh, and there are a lot of AmeriCorps programs. Youth Build is all another AmeriCorps program is, is on the other end. I mean, TFA is sort of on one end. City is sort of in the middle since we're, we're a vehicle for everybody, literally. And then there's Youth Build, which is focused primarily on, on young people who haven't made it through high school and are getting uh, training skills, both earning their GED and getting training skills by building housing. And the great thing about AmeriCorps is it's got room for all of them. And I think we need room for all these different kind of approaches. There, there isn't one size fits all. Um, so I think that's, that's the first thing. And I think more programs need to be developed that, you know, have some will be targeted, some won't, some will involve everybody. In terms of do you have to be from a community in order to make change in that community, I don't think so. I think you have to, one of the things we talk about at City Year is, you know, the moccasins prayer, great spirit, grant that I shall not criticize my brother or sister until I've walked a mile in his or her moccasins. You do have to have a certain humility. You have to have an empathy. You have to be willing to walk in the moccasins of other people uh, more than a mile, many miles, to be effective. But, uh, I, I mean, I've seen it with TFA alums. The interesting thing about City Year is, is that because we have a diverse group and we're in teams, generally we always have some young people on that team from that community or from that background. And the interesting thing that happens is, uh, you know, we've got people who've gone to Harvard and graduated. They learn... They're the students from their peers who are from that community because, you know, obviously if you're from that community, if you've grown up in that community, you understand it, you can relate faster. And that also is an interesting dynamic that happens. But they have to be open to learning. They've got to be open to, to, to um, understanding. So but I don't think, you know, if we said, uh, you know, I, I don't buy that you have to be from a particular neighborhood in order to be able to work in that, or even from a particular background, um, you know, we'd never be able to get anything done if we said, you know, you can only do that. Uh, there are strategies that work that way, for sure, and they're needed. But, um, you know, my approach is everybody's got to get in the game. And by definition, if we said, if you're from a privileged background, you're not needed, well, then we're, we're leaving out a whole set of people, and we need them. And in fact, ultimately, I think we've got to get the people who have access to resources and have access to power to care more about the people that don't. And the way to do that, I think, is through national service. Uh, and again, not just for that group. I, I like models that bring people together. But, you know, people don't just change. They have to have experiences. And, you know, I, again, I believe if we had a program where people were challenged to do this, and if we had more people of privilege serving, they would be more supportive of various policies that will, frankly, realign resources so that we can move from the kind of just unbelievable disparity we have in this country between the haves and the have-nots, which is getting worse and worse. 
uh, and I, again, I think that's one way to do it. So I don't think you have to necessarily be from that community, but you have to have a certain humility and an empathy and a willingness, frankly, to learn uh, and question some of your assumptions. Um, but then you can be incredibly effective if you, if you, uh, if you sort of meet those, those tests. Uh, oh, wow. Hi, um, I'm Tan B. I'm a brain and cognitive science undergrad here at MIT. And um, so there's been this discussion kind of of um, local versus national versus international, I guess, civic engagement um, and how to get people involved. Could you address maybe the problems of, because it's very easy to, um, relatively, to encourage people to get involved locally because there's a higher probability of uh, knowing the issues better, knowing the people the issues will affect. But um, you know, part- particularly in the U.S., you know, nationally, it's quite a big arena. How do you um, create a common conversation between someone who lives in D.C. versus someone who lives in the Midwest and even on an international level, someone who you know, lives on the other side of the world? That's a great question. One of the things I study when I'm not passionately thinking about civic engagement for young people is is social movements and, and organization and the use of technology to facilitate large social networks. And and I did a study with colleagues in seven other countries of the global anti-war protests on February 15th of 2002, which is the largest organized protest in human history. So we sort of traced it to its roots and looked at, at both the in-the-world organizational foundations of that, which are important to understand that didn't all just happen with technology. But the, the technological facilitation was an important part of scaling it so quick. So the, the entire planning period, I mean, if you think about protests in the Vietnam War, which is a comparable period to go back to, took months and sometimes years to produce a half a million or a million protesters. This one took six months to produce 20 million or so, give or take, and in 60-some countries. And, and the, the interesting thing about it is when we started going in, we actually went into demonstrations because we knew it was going to happen and we thought it was going to be important to study. So we went into demonstrations in all of these countries and handed out surveys, which we, we also were able to produce. I and mean, if you can imagine producing a survey instrument in less than a month, in in these different languages with different research teams with different agendas. We did all of that through through technology. And and the thing that I found most important was that there were meta-platforms that were quickly created, and they can be created very quickly, that enabled people to kind of lose their organizational, their modernist organizational agendas and issues and join in a common set of messages that they could all live with one way or another. So the usual social movement requirement that everybody has to be on the same page and share a collective identity, which takes years and usually doesn't work very well, uh, sometimes it does, didn't happen because these meta-platforms enabled people's organizational affiliations to melt a bit. And then the other thing that we found that made the scalability so, so amazing was that individuals who, who were invited to free themselves up, in many cases, from organizational membership identities and the issue straitjackets that sometimes go along with those things, 
were also freed up to network with all of their friends, neighbors, and, and other activists. And so that individual level networking became an important part. I mean, social movement theory often looks at organizations and coalitions and brokerage and all of those questions. And we found that it was the individual activation of millions of personal networks that seemed to be very important for the scaling of this protest. The question, of course, is what's the sustainability of movement-type formations uh, given this loose-tied uh, set of networks? And, and that's another question. But, but many of these protests have been recurring in countries, including ours, under the media radar because they're not news. They're not, at least in this country, they tend not to be news. Uh, but they still continue to happen. So, I, I mean, that's kind of an example, I think, of how technology and individual networking become important. Yeah, I've seen really great examples in the Web 2.0 world, for example, of, of uh, activism after the big tsunami that hit Indonesia and after Katrina. There were various groups who were formed uh, who were making databases of relief uh, suppliers and uh, to enable the people who needed the relief to get them. In Katrina, actually, I, I was working on a, a database effort from people all over the country who were scouring various websites and, um, in many cases, making phone calls to find churches, community centers, places that were opening and had beds for people who, who had no place to go, and we were putting all those things in a, in a database so that the, the Red Cross people and various other people could access that and, and find central places. So there are good examples where the technologies we have now um, on the Internet particularly, but also in increasing uh, uh, ways with cell phone technology to actually organize people on a, on a really large scale and to get involved in a, in a much bigger effort. I mean, most of us who, who felt that we really would have liked to help in the Katrina disaster, many people actually did go there physically to help out, but um, most of us can't do that. But, but the Internet and, and um, the new web tools uh, allow that kind of um, engagement now. Yeah, I guess I'll just add I'll back to something that Mitch said a, re just a few minutes ago, which is passion. And I think that, and I would also draw the distinction between sort of uh, uh, citizen service and civic engagement. I, obviously, people have limited time. And so some people are going to find, when it comes to sort of service work, local, national, international. Some people want to work overseas. Some people want to work on national problems. Some people want to work right in their own backyard. Uh, and it's all about finding your passion. But I think when you think of the other side, which is being the Harry Truman kind of highest office citizen, uh, at least take the effort to educate yourself and to join with other voices on these issues. I think everybody's got to be a local, national, and global citizen in today's world. You've, you know, because we have to start building citizen power behind different advocacy efforts. Um, I mean, this thing about 20 million people in six—that's extraordinary. But if you don't, if you don't do both. It's not enough just to say, you know, I'm going to work volunteering in my kid's school or, or neighborhood school if you don't also care about education reform policy at the local, state, and national level because that's how education is done. 
Um, you know, because all that volunteering will never solve the education problem unless you're engaging on the policy for, you know, similarly, climate change. It's great to, you know, get involved in a recycling effort in your own neighborhood, but if you don't care about local, state, national, and global policy, that's a global problem. Uh, if that's what you're passionate about, the problem won't get solved. So I think it's, um, it's sort of in some ways just deciding what kind of citizen you want to be. You want a, a service citizen, but also then an advocacy citizen. Uh, and if you're doing the advocacy, you need both sides on that. Just to correct the record, those protests occurred in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Justin Reich. I'm at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, so I, we started with Professor Bennett talking uh, sort of some, to my ear somewhat just, uh, sort of despairingly about schools. Um, and so I'd love to go back to that for a minute um, and to think about, as I've heard you sort of talk about the skill sets that students need for the kind of youth engagement you're talking about, or you, you, there's sort of two pieces there, um, one of which are these civic engagement skills, and then perhaps if we want them doing it online, there's a series of kind of Web 2.0 or other kind of technological skills. Um, when I hear about Step It Up, and it was the Genocide Network, I mean, one's being founded from Middlebury, the other being founded from Haverford. Um, so these are obviously some young people who have some extraordinary educational opportunities that they've had, and, you know, probably, both, I actually know at least one kid from Step It Up, and, um, you know, he went to some great schools and had some great opportunities. Um, and I think because of, you know, I think if we look at the issues they're addressing, um, it may be that some of the issues they're choosing to address may come out of their positions of privilege and out of the extraordinary educations that they've had. Um, um, so what, you know, we may, we may despair about, you know, testing regimes and all those kinds of things, but are there realistic things that our schools can be doing um, in the near future to help, youth, to help this issue of youth and civic engagement? Sort of what's the role of, of the public school system um, that's, that's realistic and possible that we could be working towards? They could stop testing the life out of students, um, for one, and and let students go out into their communities. I mean, the, the formula for how civic ed works in schools is pretty simple. Peer-based, let the issues come from the students, uh, deliberate about them if you need to have a common issue to study how policy gets made, but then open the doors and let the kids go out into the community to learn about what's going on there. And, and that's a formula for not a drudgery approach to civic ed, but for an exciting, engaging one that may have sustained effects on, on young people's interest in their communities and feeling that they can go out and, and do something. The trouble is that that's a hard formula to get going, and it tends to occur more in affluent schools than in poor schools uh, for various reasons. Teachers need more resources to help kids do that in poor schools, and they tend to have the resources to enable kids to do it in the richer schools. But if you do those things, I mean, schools could be a fine environment. It's just figuring out how, given our chaotic school system and how many levels of policy there are going on in it, how to make that attractive and even compelling for more schools to do. Um, but schools could work. They, they just don't at the moment very well. Yeah, I don't. I don't even want to touch the the issue of how to how to fix the schools, <laughs> but yeah, that you know, I I think it all I, the Teach for America program is is an interesting example. I think what it's going to take is really dedicated teachers who who are allowed to teach, 
And we know that those dedicated teachers are out there, and we know that there are many citizen advocates of better schools. And I think um, the less involvement with the various levels of bureaucracy that hamper the schools now, the better. Educators should be allowed to decide what's a good education policy for our schools. Hi, my name is Toby. I work at uh, WGBH in the interactive group there. Um, I'm curious about the relationship and changes to the relationship between civic engagement and the subject of history, whether that's something taught in a classroom or experienced through documentaries or websites or books. Um, I'm speculating from Lance's characterization that in a dutiful generation where voting was the primary civic uh, obligation, that understanding your history was also something approached with a sense of duty and obligation. And whether if that was ever true, is it not now? Uh, and if so, how can we keep history alive and make it uh, useful uh, and connected to young people's lives? That's a great question. I just give, give you an anecdote. Uh, Seattle's been a, a site of many interesting historical events, including the um, WTO protests of a, almost a decade ago. And when those protests occurred, a number of colleagues got together and we decided, you know, this is, this is history. So how about we get our students to go out and document the experiences of the protesters? You know, Seattle created indie media and there was all kinds of, of captured uh, records of, of these protests. They were just sitting in laptops and cameras and so on from the, the protest participants. So we sent teams out, and, and it was really exciting for the students to go out and, and document this history, and then they helped organize it, and we got the library interested in archiving everything from posters to turtle outfits that were worn uh, during the, the protests. And, and digitally create records of turtle costumes so you can spin them. And if you go to the University of Washington Libraries and the WTO History Project, um, you'll see a lot of digital archives and records from about 100 participants of all sorts who were involved in these protests. So I think kids could, I mean, you know, recognize contemporary historical moments that are important. And, and sometimes these can be pretty small but significant to communities and go out and capture them, that might be a bridge to learning how to appreciate other historical events more deeply. Oh, thank you. I have a question in relation about how is the role of adult people in order to involve these young people, much more how you're saying. But Listening to you, it seems to me that there is a big question in relation to intergenerational relationship between people. Because, for example, in Spain, a big deal to involve young people into new technologies is how parents are thinking about that. And even we are mothers for young people. It seems to me intergenerational question is a big deal there, and I will want to know more about that, about what you said in... in that's so big. Thank you. Well, I think we, we take the intergenerational issue very seriously in, in clubhouses. And um, one of the interesting things that comes up uh, sometimes, particularly we, we've seen it, for example, in immigrant communities where um, 
the young people are learning English and the older generation often don't know English when they come. And so now the young people are learning all these incredible technical skills, they know English, and it, it makes the older generation feel very disempowered. So one of the things we're trying to do is also have the older people in many of the programs work with the young people who come to the clubhouse, either separately, sometimes the parents don't like to admit that they don't know this or they don't know that. So sometimes it's much more empowering for the, the older generation of people to, to meet together by themselves, or sometimes it works better to work with, it, with the kids. But um, we, we see that disparity a lot, and it's something that I think many clubhouses are really trying to work to, to bring those two generate well, two, more than two, bring the generations together and uh, to empower them as well so that the, the young people, as they're learning a lot of skills, don't outpace uh, their elders and make them feel somehow um, disempowered. One more. No? Two One more. Uh, my name is Alex Levin. I'm an undergraduate at Boston University. Um, Professor Bennett, I really liked a phrase that you used, which was effective voice. Um, but at the last communications forum event, uh, Cass Sunstein said that when like-minded people come together, it can create some sort of violent chaos. Um, so I'm wondering if there could be any kind of detrimental youth voice and if it would take over at any point or at least become large enough to turn into a threat against a more positive civic engagement. Sure. I mean, you could imagine detrimental youth voice, but I, I, I sense that there are tech... You know, we're talking in a way about technology and access to technologies that facilitate some kind of collective intelligence uh, so that... You know, you can coordinate voice. I mean, Howard Rheingold's talked about smart mobs, and uh, we can certainly, and Wikipedia suggests a, a youthful, intelligent voice in uh, growing action. And, and so I think the sort of creative deployment of technologies that facilitate intelligent gatherings of large numbers of people uh, taking action. I, I think the global war protests are an excellent example of how pretty modest technologies really scaled uh, a large action um, that was intelligently aimed. I mean, the, suddenly the, you know, the BBC reported, uh, our, our press didn't, but the BBC did, that suddenly public opinion is, is a power in this country. I mean, the largest protest in the history of London apparently got the attention of politicians and, and the press. Well, the, the witching hour has occurred, and I just wanted to say on behalf of the Communications Forum, the Comparative Media Studies Program, and the Center for Future Civic Media, that this conversation is exactly the kind of thing that we're excited to have, and that all of you could participate, or many of you could, is, is really the point of the exercise. Uh, it's not automatic that media technologies will lead to civic engagement. And I think one of the main things that we're st all struggling for, people on this panel and those of us 
here at MIT, uh, is to help facilitate that process um, and not allow the voices of, of negativity um, or the hate groups or whoever uh, to, to use these tools uh, alone. I mean, it's, it's our duty to help provide the opportunities and the mentorship, and I think the, the generations can, can work together on that very effectively. It certainly isn't automatic. It's all in us to make it work. So um, on behalf, again, of the MIT Communications Forum, Lance Bennett, Ingeborg Enter, Alan Casey, and Mitchell Resnick, thank you so much.